Catholic Doctrine Bible Study. This is session 182. I'm your host, Jim Hawk. And in this session, we'll be looking at Numbers chapter 19. We're going to read about this strange rite, R-I-T-E, involving a red heifer. So unless you're driving, turn to uh, Numbers chapter 19. We see in verse 1, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the regulation which the law of the Lord prescribes. Tell the Israelites to procure for you a red heifer that is free from every blemish and defect and on which no yoke has ever been laid. This is to be given to Eleazar the priest to be led outside the camp and slaughtered in his presence. Eleazar the priest shall take some of its blood on its fingers and sprinkle it seven times toward the front of the meeting tent. The meeting tent, you'll recall, is the place where the Ark of the Covenant is, is kept, as well as the three things that are inside the uh, Ark of the Covenant, the Ten Commandments, etc. Okay, then the heifer, verse 5, the heifer shall be burned in his sight, and um, then, I'm just skip, skipping down here, and they're going to take the ashes of this red heifer, and... Um, Deposit them in a clean place outside the camp. This is in verse 9. Um, they are to be kept for preparing lustral water. So circle lustral water in verse 9. Lustral water, and then in your margins, write holy water. Okay. So you're supposed to prepare this holy water for cleansing, and it's made out of the ashes of a red heifer. All right, it burned red heifer. And um, so also we learn in verse 18, um, take some hyssop and dip it in this water and sprinkle it on the tent and all the vessels and persons. Um, so, you know, for ritual cleanliness. All right, now that's pretty weird, right? Um, and it's so it's used for purification. Now, first of all, um, you're all Bible students. So this red heifer is supposed to, the, the sacrificial red heifer is supposed to be without blemish and defect, and it's supposed to be slaughtered outside the camp. So who do we know in the New Testament that was without defect and was slaughtered outside the camp? Well, as you know, if you don't know the answer to any question I'm asking, a, a good possibility is if you answer Jesus, you might have it right. And so it is. But think of it. The, the Old Testament people who wrote this, um, they had no uh, concept that Jesus was coming, that there was going to be a, uh, a, a someone sacrificed that was without blemish outside the camp and uh, used for purification, you know, because Christ uh, cleanses us of our sins, right? But, um, so we, we, we have that. Now, why am I spending so much time talking about a red heifer? We're Christians. We don't worry about red heifers, right? Well, because, uh, so anyway, think of, think of this red heifer's ashes as being used to make holy water, which is used for cleansing, okay? Why is this a big deal? Well, some, orth some highly orthodox Jews and some highly fundamentalist Christians, not Catholics, feel like that one day the temple will be rebuilt. Recall 
that the last temple was destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans, okay, and thus ended the practice of animal sacrifice for the Jews because they had, they had to, if they were going to do animal sacrifices, they had to do them in the temple, and there hasn't been a temple for a long, long, long time, right, since 70 AD. So that's why you don't see animal sacrifices in the temple. Why else don't you see, why don't you see the temple rebuilt? Because, as you may have heard me mention before, there is something else sitting now where the Jewish temple used to sit. And it is a Muslim holy site known as the Dome of the Rock, which you heard me say before, that is allegedly where the prophet Muhammad rose to, uh, to uh, their idea of, of heaven. And also there is a mosque there called Al-Aqsa Mosque. And so good luck trying to rebuild that temple, right? Because that is going to set off World War III if the Jews try to uh, rebuild this temple because uh, the Muslims are not going to go along with that, right? Well, uh, the fundamentalist Christians, the ones who believe in the rapture theory, and we've talked about that before in our studies of uh, uh, Paul's letters to the Thessalonians in uh, a little bit in Revelation, etc. cetera. Uh, we, we don't believe in this rapture theory, all right? Um, so I'm not going to talk about the rapture theory uh, much at all here because we've already covered that and you can look at that up in other sessions. But um, the fundamentalist Christians, they want the temple to be rebuilt so that that will bring on, you know, like a World War III environment. And that's fine with them because they believe they're going to be raptured out and they can avoid all tribulations and all that sort of thing. Um, they feel that they'll be raptured out and gone. Um, so who doesn't want to see World War III break out as a result of this? Well, non-fundamentalist Christians and, of course, the Catholic Church. We're the party poopers. We pray for peace in the region. And uh, so we don't want, you know, we don't want the temple to be re rebuilt, and it won't be rebuilt. One of the conditions for the temple to be rebuilt is that they find a perfect red heifer so they can purify people and purify the ground on which the new temple will sit. Um, but somehow to ultra-fundamentalist, um, the idea of, of uh, praying for peace in that region uh, seems to be, you know, kind of a, kind of a bad thing. Um, we've talked before, the Catholic Church rejects the whole idea of a rapture in the first place. Uh, it's an idea that wasn't even made up until the 1850s, and for that reason alone, it deserves rejection. You know, the idea didn't come around until, you know, 1800 plus years after Christ uh, stopped walking the earth as a, as a uh, mortal man. Okay, so uh, we don't see the need for a physical temple to be rebuilt. Why? Well, um, maybe in your margins somewhere in chapter 19 of Numbers, you could write John 2.19. Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. It says in uh, John chapter 2 verse 21, he was talking about his body, Jesus' body, not a physical uh, temple. So I think you can see the dangers 
of extreme fundamentalism, whether it be Muslim, Jew, or, or Christian. Um, so let's move away from red heifers and Armageddon, and let's see why Moses doesn't get to enter into the promised land. Spoiler alert, he doesn't get to enter the promised land. When the second generation of Israelites that has uh, left Egypt, um, uh, you know, when the second generation will be allowed to. So now we're into chapter 20. So in chapter 20, you wouldn't know it from this text. More than 38 years have passed since the Israelites have left Mount Sinai, even though we just studied their, their leaving, you know, in the last session or two. Why do we know this? We know this because Aaron dies in verse 28 of chapter 20. You can look that up yourself. And in uh, a little, little while later, in Numbers 33, verse 38, which we won't get to today, it says that Aaron died in the 40th year after the people had left Egypt. So we know it took them three months to get from Egypt to Mount Sinai. And then they were at Mount Sinai for at least nine months until after that Passover. So it's 38 plus years have, has, has gone by um, since uh, they began their sojourn there. So after 38 plus years and all that wandering, they're kind of right back where they were when they sent the spies out at Kadesh. Um, the map in, well, uh, so they've been kind of screwing around for 38 years, haven't they? Uh, virtually all of that first generation that, uh, that was freed as slaves from the Egyptians are dead. And they haven't made progress towards their goal, the promised land. Why? Well, we talked about this the last couple sessions because they didn't trust God's promises. But what do they continue to do? They complain. Let's look at chapter 20, um, you know, verses uh, 1 through 6. Well, let's, in the interest of time, let's look at uh, verse 5. Why did you lead us out of Egypt only to bring us to this wretched place which has neither grain nor figs nor vines nor pomegranates? Here there's not even water to drink. Okay, here comes the end of, of uh, Moses' chance to personally lead his people into the promised land. It says in verse 6, The glory of the Lord appeared to them, and the Lord said to Moses, Take the staff and assemble the community, you and your brother Aaron, and in his presence order the rock to yield its waters. So um, maybe underline verse 8 there of chapter 20 and circle the phrase, order the rock. So Moses is supposed to speak to the rock, right? From the rock, you shall bring forth water for the community and their livestock to drink. Okay, simple enough, right? Just speak to the rock. Okay, so Moses took the staff from its place before the Lord as he ordered. He and Aaron assembled the community in front of the rock where he said to them, listen to me, you rebels. Are we... So instead of, hey, God is going to provide you water here, it's, are we to bring water for you out of this rock? So he's implying that, um, you know, it's, it's Moses that is at least partially responsible for the water that's about to come through the rock. Verse 11, then raising his hand, 
Moses struck the rock twice with his staff, and water gushed out in abundance. So the good news is water came out. But the bad news is he made it look, Moses made it look like uh, he was doing it, number one. Or perhaps he made it seem that God was angry at the people. Well, certainly at different times, God is angry with the people because they complain all the time. But um, anyway, so I would say that, you know, from my reading of it, it looks to me like the problem is Moses seems to be taking credit for this by striking, striking the rock. So what's the consequence? Verse 12, but the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you were not faithful to me in showing forth my sanctity before the Israelites, you shall not lead this community into the land I will give them. And so we're going to see later on, Moses is going to die just shy of the promised land. Okay. Um, so does that sound, uh, does that sound fair to you that he, that he is not going to make it to the promised land? Uh, don't you feel a little sorry for Moses? He waited a little under 40 years and not, it doesn't get to go to the promised land, even though he's been leading the people. Well, first of all, we know that he does enter the promised land, just not in the Old Testament, right? So you might say, well, when does he enter the promised land? You know, it just shows he died, you know, later on in the Old Testament. Well, what about at the transfiguration of Jesus in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 17? Well, uh, in, in uh, Moses' first stay on earth, he doesn't get to the promised land. But by Matthew chapter 17, um, uh, you know, God, you know, it doesn't say God sent Moses to hell. In fact, quite the opposite. He just didn't let him answer that promised land. Um, but he is with Jesus in the transfiguration in the holy land in Jesus' time, in the transfiguration. If you don't believe me, look at Matthew chapter 17. So you may, so what does this mean to you and me? Well, you may not have achieved all of your goals, your earthly goals, um, while you are walking on this earth, okay? But um, you will achieve your ultimate goal when you're in heaven, assuming that you persevere in your walk with Christ. So Moses gets to the promised land, just not the physical land of his time, all right? So maybe if you look at it from an eternal perspective, you won't feel so sorry for Moses that he doesn't actually get to be alive when the people enter the promised land. He brings them, you know, real close, but uh, doesn't get to do that. By the way, another view as to why Moses wasn't al allowed in the promised land during his lifetime can be found in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 37, written by a different author, by the way. And his take on why Moses isn't uh, allowed into the promised land is uh, that um, uh, he, he wasn't allowed to enter because of the sins of the people. Okay. Then... Um, so, but remember, the people are supposed to just follow the cloud, and the cloud is God. If the cloud moves, um, you know, the people are supposed to move, and if it stops, uh, the people are supposed to stop. stop. Okay, so we, we see that Moses is still in um, chapter 20. Um, Moses goes to the king of Edom and says, hey, 
how about letting us through on our way to the promised land? Well, the Edomites and the Israelites uh, have had a long rivalry, if you will, and the king of Edom refused. And I, I don't blame him because, you know, the Israelites, you know, they've got a sig significant number of soldiers. So would you let a bunch of soldiers pass through the middle of your country? No. So um, if you, I'm not going to give you a map of this, but because of this, uh, the Israelites, instead of going straight to the promised land, they take a very circuitous route uh, and they go two or 300 miles out of the way. You know, it, it'd be like going, if your goal is to go from, say, Dallas to Oklahoma City, but um, you're rerouted by way of Houston, you know, it makes no sense, right? It takes you uh, hundreds of miles out of the way in, in the wrong direction. Um so, but next Aaron dies, and I told you about that before there. Uh, the death of Aaron is described in verse 22 and on. And, uh, but before he does, God installs the new high priest, Eleazar, as God commands in chapter 20, verse 26. Um, notice that God didn't tell the, the common people to have an election for high priest. This church of Israelites was not a democracy and neither is our Catholic church and thank God. The Pope's decisions aren't always popular, judging from surveys of Catholics, any more than Moses' decisions were popular with the people. But as with Moses, the Pope is to be walking with God, not pandering to the votes of men. Okay, so, so much for chapter 19 and 20, and we'll pick up on that next week. So, let's go to the Lord in prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord, this story of the red heifer kind of is befuddling until we realize that this red heifer was not the only perfect sacrifice designed for the cleansing of sins. We thank you for the ultimate perfect sacrifice of Jesus and that he also was a sac sacrificed himself willingly for the forgiveness of our sins. Um, help us when, when uh, help us to give credit to God as Moses apparently forgot to do with the incident of the water. All good things that happen to us are as a result of you, and help us to uh, keep that in mind. Uh, we ask this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.